Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. If any preaching gets you to feel like, you know, Jesus is boring or that, that, that Christianity is dull or that church isn't exciting or thrilling, that preaching, you can throw it out and don't ever listen to that preacher again. If ever preaching makes things to be boring, it's not anointed. The anointed preaching of the gospel is thrilling. It's exciting. It's captivating. It magnetizes people. It draws people in. People that always say, you know, the reason why they got so many people following them is they're not preaching the real gospel like we are. Actually, I'd, I'd say it's the opposite because Jesus, was he preaching the real gospel? Yeah, he preached the real gospel. He was the gospel made flesh. He's the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us. And the Bible says that he had one problem in his, in his entire ministry. His problem wasn't the devil. His problem wasn't the sick. His problem wasn't uh, 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 even the religious people. His problem that he had was finding venues large enough to hold the crowds that would come in. That's why he would oftentimes preach from the seashores of Galilee or he'd preach on a mountain so that he can better, uh, he can better um, uh, uh, amplify his voice because there were such large crowds at any time scholars believe that there could be between 20 to 30,000 people that followed him yes he had 12 disciples yes the bible says there are 120 in the upper room but while he was on the earth traveling the it's it's very possible that he had i mean remember in john 6 he fed 5,000 men not counting women or children and anybody knows that in any re- any uh, revival service, women and children largely outnumber men. And so if there were 5,000 men, there could have been anywhere uh, between fifteen to 30,000 people, counting women or children that were at that present time in the wilderness when he split the bread and, ma- and multiplied the fish. So Jesus' preaching wasn't a repellent. It repelled only one person. It repelled the religious people. But to people that were searching for truth and people that were hungry for the manifest move of God, it drew them in. It caused them to gravitate. And so that whole excuse, well, you know, the reason why they got so many people following them is because they don't preach the real gospel. They've adulterated the message. No, I, I mean, there are people that have adulterated the message and they've scratched the itching ears of people and they've, they have amassed large followings. But just because someone has a large following doesn't mean he's preaching the, uh, an, adul- uh, an adulterated version of the gospel. I mean, look at a guy like Billy Graham. Billy Graham is estimated to have reached almost 2 billion people in his lifetime with the gospel with estimates conservatively show that he reached uh, 200 million people 200 million first-time decisions. He, he was able to have 200, 200 million first-time decisions in his lifetime throughout his various endeavor, uh, evangelistic endeavors. That means media, uh, TV, radio, and his live crusades. Was Billy Graham preaching an, adult, an adulterated, perverted, watered-down gospel? No. If you listen to Billy Graham, he had a straight message. It was repent and believe. All that to say, when Jesus is lifted up, 
Men will draw, uh, God will draw men to him. Jesus said, when I, the son of man, am lifted up, when I'm exalted, all men, I will draw all men to myself. God, uh, Jesus said in John chapter six, that when the son of man is lifted up, or in that day when he's exalted, God, God by his spirit will begin to draw men to him. He said, it's impossible for someone to come to me unless God by his spirit draws them. And the only way the Holy Spirit of God is going to draw people to him is if he's preached and he has spoken about it. You know, that's why I always say my job's the easiest job in the entire universe. All I've got to do is boast on Jesus, brag on Jesus Brag confidently about his power, about his ability, about what he's done. And when I do that, it's very easy. All I've got to do is brag about Jesus. The Holy Spirit does the rest. His power shows up, sets people free, and then people are, are, are converted. People are won over to the Lord in times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. So they make it out. The devil wants nothing more than for you to think evangelism is some hard, complex thing that should be reserved only for the evangelist and the pastor and people in the fivefold ministry when in reality the fivefold ministry if it's done well is to equip the saints for the work of ministry the work of the ministry is not just for the fivefold minister it's for the christian we are all ambassadors for christ god pleading through us be reconciled to him that's second corinthians 5 and verses 17 through 21 so we all have this work and the devil wants to overcomplicate that work the devil wants to to make you think that that work you need some sort of scholarship or, or some sort of, uh, of of high education you have to go through seminary you have to have gone through the 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 hierarchy of religion before you start being used by God. No, it doesn't matter if you just got saved last week or you've been saved for 20 years. As long as you make yourself available to God so that he can use your mouth to proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day, then you will begin to be used by God. You'll start to see God do wonders in your life. You'll start to pe see people saved in your life. You'll start to see people get healed in your life. God is not looking for for the best trained and the most talented and the most skilled and the most oratorical, uh, oratorically blessed people, the people that can speak with the gift of gab. God is just looking for a donkey that will be humbly used to usher his presence into your respective regions. And so all you have to do is say, Lord, send me. That's why I'm doing this broadcast today because 10 years ago, it was in 2012, I prayed that prayer. When I got saved, I said, Lord, send me. And since then, I have yielded myself to the Holy Spirit and to his power to be used by him before it's eternally too late to proclaim, to, to, uh, to, to, um, to speak forth the message of the gospel, which Paul said, it's foolishness to those that are not called, to those that are, to those that are perishing. It's foolishness to those that are perishing, the Bible says, but to those that are the called, the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. 
to everyone who believes. So if you'll take a second and share this broadcast today, help me get this word out to as many people as possible. We are going to blast the internet airwaves with the gospel today. We are going to exalt the person of Jesus Christ today. We are going to lift up the one who is called the captain of our salvation, the champion of our faith, who is eternally worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. You want to, you know what, the 2022 application of I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation. Number one, it's you being present wherever you are, in your workplace, in your schools, at your home, in your family, wherever you are, you have to be present and, and, um, and take opportunity at every moment and instance to use your mouth to declare the gospel, to actually not say, hey, do you want to come to church, but actually be the church beyond the four walls and tell people about Jesus. But number two, way you can show the world that you're not ashamed of the gospel is by sharing content like this, by getting these this type of broadcast out, this type of recording out, this type of video out. There's too many Christians, they're more intent on sharing a video of what's going on in Ukraine or what's going on here. But then when it comes to sharing, you look at their newsfeed you look at their history of what they've posted on their instagram or what they've posted on their facebook or what they've shared from youtube uh and and it's 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 something to be ashamed of because it's all it's all natural stuff it's about time the church begins to blast with every media that's available to us the gospel out in our generation and so if you'll help me today and share that, click that share button on Facebook, click the like button, comment as much as you can on YouTube, share it by comment. You can, you can help us get into that algorithm by sharing, sharing the broadcast, um, by sending it to somebody that you know would need this. And then also by liking the video and commenting on the video. All those things do help with getting this word out to more people. And we know that more people hearing the word means more people are being impacted by the word. So let's get in it straight away. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It seems like society in modern history, I mean, you date it back to when since Jesus was crucified and rose again from the dead. This person of Jesus, actually let's go beyond, let's go before that. Jesus has been the subject of obsession from his very arrival. And not even his arrival, his announcement. The moment he was announced, the Bible says Mary was perplexed by the greeting of the angel. You move on. To when those, uh, those um, wise men announced that the Messiah was born in the city of Bethlehem of Judea. And Herod becomes insanely obsessed with this character of Jesus. He's already known to kings. And he, hasn't, he had just been born. Who knows how long before that. Jesus Christ has been the subject of scrutiny and obsession. Since the... The dawn of the ages. I mean, all of prophecy revolves around the person of Jesus. You study the, the writings of Isaiah. There's many messianic prophecies. The study, uh, you study the book of Psalms and David has many messianic prophecies all pointing towards what Jesus would ultimately come to do. Who is this Jesus? 
He dominates societal thinking to this day. Societies are obsessed with him. You look at, at, uh, at Hollywood. Hollywood can't seem to stay away from the subject, subject of Jesus. Even people who don't believe are directing movies about him. You look at Left Behind with the Nicolas Cage one. You look at, 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 at the, 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 the movies that have been made about Jesus. You look at all the references within secular movies about Jesus. You look at shows like Family Guy that make uh, satirical content and really blasphemous content about Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus is obsessed about. Why? Why is it that the number one profanity or curse word people love to use in in society, whether they believe in him or not, they've made his name into a curse word. What is what, something they say when, most people say when they stub their toe, they say JC. When somebody uh, has something happen to them that's not favorable towards them, what do they say? They say Jesus Christ. They use him as a, prof, as, as a, as a curse word. They use his name to express their ill feelings that they're feeling in that moment. Why is there such an obsession around the person of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about him. Well, if he was just a fairy tale or if he was just some fanatical lunatic, why are we still talking about him 2,000 years later? Why is he the subject of worship of hundreds of millions of sincere believers across the earth to this day? I mean, that's got to scratch some head, certainly. Why is a guy named Paul who initially, right after the resurrection of Christ and then the beginning of this ministry of proclaiming Christ, this guy named Paul has this diabolical, uh, diabolical plan and agenda to eradicate the Christians. His name was Saul before, either, rather I should mention. To eradicate the Christians, to kill every living Christian, to go into every city, even to Damascus, even the far regions of Syria at that time, to go and locate people that called on the name of Jesus, to, 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 to bind them, commit them to prison with the intent on executing them eventually. Why is it that these disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these guys were brutally martyred because of their allegiance to this person named Jesus Christ. Why were they ready? I mean, you study it. Some were sawn in two. Some were impaled. You read, I have a book behind me called John Fox's Book of Martyrs. And you read about everything the martyrs went through. I'm not talking about they, were, they had a trigger, a, a gun pointed to their head and a bullet, you know, sudden death, sudden glory. We're talking about horrendous treatment that they experienced before they finally fled, uh, before they finally escaped into eternity. But the, I mean, Thomas went to India to preach the gospel. He was chased off a cliff. When he fell off the cliff, they, they found him. He wasn't dead. He was still alive and breathing. So they beat him with a fuller's club and then put a spear through him. Why did these people have this, 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 uh, how do they make this, this decision that to the end, I will endure. No matter how men treat me, we will endure. What was the motivational force behind it all? Certainly, if Jesus was just some apocalyptic preacher, and once he died, that was the end of the story, these men and women would never, they would never have gone to such extent 
and move out of such comfort into such discomfort. Like Paul, this brutal murder of the church has this radical encounter with the risen savior and then the entire rest of his life he gives up i mean think of this paul was not some moron paul wasn't some idiot paul wasn't some you know intellectually deficient human this guy was one of the most brilliant minds of his day who had climbed up the hierarchical uh, the hierarchy of of religion he was a pharisee of pharisees the bible says he was uh, uh, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the leading teacher in all Jerusalem. He had the most, the most uh, efficient education of that day. Even King Agrippa knew of Paul. And he said, Paul, much learning has driven you mad. So even there was a reputation among, among heathens and among the pagans that Paul was an educational uh, 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 giant of his day. And yet, this Paul, after having a radical change, radical encounter with Jesus Christ, he spends the rest of his life giving up. You read about it in Philippians 3. He says, everything that I gained, all the, the titles and the rewards that I achieved, all the strides that I took towards becoming potentially the high priest one day, I, I count it as rubbish. I count it as garbage. If I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection. He said, all of it, I've thrown it away. It means nothing to me. If only I can know him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. He gave it all up so that he can know the person of Jesus. Why is it? Why is it that none of the, I mean, none of the disciples saved John were spared from a brutal death? Peter was hung upside down. Who is this Jesus? This dominant figure, this centerpiece of the universe and the centerpiece of mil hundreds of millions of people's attention to this day. Let me read something. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? That I the son of man am. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus looks to the disciples at large and he says, Who, what's the reputation that I have right now amongst men? What do people say about me? You've been hearing the rumors? Well, spill it out. What are the rumors about me? What's the speculations going on around, around my, my mission and my work and my person and my nature? And they replied unanimously. They said, some say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others say you're Elijah. And still others say you might be Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. We don't know. There's a lot of speculation going on. To this day, there's a lot of people that say Jesus was a lunatic. He was a lunatic that had, uh, had made absurd prophecies, apocalyptic prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Others say... That he was, he was just a good teacher. They don't believe in his deity, but they say he was a good teacher. He taught good things. He spoke about love. He preached on peace. He united people around this center theme of loving others as you would want others to love you. Some say he was a prophet. That he was, a, he was, he was sent by God, but he was not the son of God. That he was just a prophet. Just 
uh, coupled in with Abraham and Isaiah and Elijah and all the other prophets from in biblical history. That's how the Muslims certainly see him. He was just another prophet. Muhammad was a prophet. Jesus was a They all just couple him in. Others say he was a revolutionary. And he certainly wasn't a revolution, revolutionary in, in the sense that he caused a revolution against uh, uh, like picking up swords and, and, and weaponry and causing a revolution against Rome in his day. He wasn't... Uh, he, he wasn't sent as a Messiah to take up arms in that day. In that pres- That's what the disciples thought. They said, are you now going to wage war? Because they thought, he, you know, the Lion of Judah, that's what the Messiah's title was, that he was going to come with, with a fierce army behind him and wage war against the Roman Empire and finally free Jerusalem from their grip. But that's, he didn't cause a revolution like that, although he did pretty much uh, disarm the Roman Empire within 200 or 300 years. He was a revolutionary in that he changed people's lives from, from then until this day. Still changing people's lives. He's changed my life, and I'm sure he's changed many of you that are watching online right now, your life. Some of you were depressed. Some of you were in a terrible situation. Some of you were filled with sorrow. Some of you were suicidal. And when the Prince of Peace came into your heart, everything changed. No, nothing might have changed immediately on the outside. Everything changed on the inside. He caused a revolution inwardly that caused a revolution outwardly. Some say he was just a miracle worker. You read the Quran. They never doubt that he worked miracles. They talked about the miracles of Jesus. It, it talks about how he, he even raised the dead, that he caused the lepers to be clean and he, he healed the sick. They don't doubt that. They don't dispute that. And he certainly was a miracle worker. Some say he was, he was a peacemaker. That I don't know if he was because he said, I've come to bring a sword on the earth. He was a peacemaker in that he established peace between man and God. The Bible says he himself is our peace and he made peace with God through the blood of his cross so that now we can have peace with our Lord Jesus. Uh, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But he certainly didn't bring, come to bring peace on planet earth. The Bible says very clearly that there will come a new heaven and a new earth and that in that day there will be peace. But until then there's not going to be any, any type of lasting peace. He even said, I've come to set father against son and son against father. And in, their own, in your own household, there'll be two against three and three against two. Some say he was a love enthusiast. That he promoted love. And that's why we like him. We love Jesus because he promoted love. He said, love, love others. And this is the, the royal law. That you should love the Lord your God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, by this, all the world will know that you're my disciples, by your love for one another. And he certainly was a love enthusiast. He said, no greater love than this, than that I should lay down my life for my friends. And he says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. Because the Father has sent me. God so loved the world, the Bible says, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus certainly was a a promoter of love. But he was more than all these things. And ultimately... We narrow it down to this. More than a prophet, more than a good teacher, more than a miracle worker, more than a revolutionary, more than a peacemaker, more than a love enthusiast, Jesus Christ was and is and will always be the son of the living God. He's the son of the living God. And let me tell you, your strength of faith will completely rely upon your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. The strength of your faith 
is contingent upon your understanding of the Son of the living God, the person of Jesus Christ. I've written down seven, seven answers to the question of who is Jesus. And by no means am I going to have an exhaustive study of this today because it would be impossible. John actually finishes off his letter, his gospel in John 21. He says, I suppose that not, no, there, all the books of the world combined could not, could not be sufficient to write down everything that we've seen and witnessed in Jesus Christ during his three and a half years of ministry. I mean, if three and a half years of ministry and the world, the books of the world could not contain uh, enough pages and there's not enough wood on planet earth to cut down and trees to cut down, to make enough pages and paper to write down a proper description of Jesus Christ, I certainly can't do it in an hour broadcast, but I'm gonna do my best to condense it all. Number one, Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? He's the son of the living God. Listen to this. So they asked, Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? They said, you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You're one of the prophets. But then I love it. He points to, G to Peter specifically and he looks in on Peter because Peter was the eldest. He was the oldest one out of all the disciples. And he said, who do you say that I am? And ultimately it doesn't matter what, what other people are saying about Jesus. It doesn't matter if they say he's some lunatic, some maniacal liar that just claimed to be he was God, because that's what some people think about Jesus, that he was some liar, this pathological liar that thought he was God. Some people thought that he was, he was just a, 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 a Chavagera type of figure, that he just wanted to challenge Rome in that day. And people can have their opinions. I'm sure you've, if you've gone to university, your college professor had his opinions. And there are, there are many college professors that love to share their opinions in class and belittle the Christian, making them feel like it's absurd to still believe in this primitive idea and belief that Jesus Christ was more than just human. But let me read you something. This is, this is not a quote from a, a, a moron or some you know, lowly educated person. This is E.M. Blakelock, who was a, a, a very reputable historian in his day. And this is what he wrote about Jesus. E.M. Blakelock wrote, I claim to be a historian and my approach to classics is historical. And I can tell you that the evidence of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Better authenticated than Caesar, better authenticated than most of the ancient uh, facts of ancient history. Listen to this. There's 10 times more evidence of, sec of evidence in secular history of the existence of Jesus and attesting to the works that he accomplished, including his resurrection, than that of Caesar ever even existed. I wrote another one. Clark Dinnick of McMasterville University wrote these words. There exists no, and obviously if I'm talking about, you know, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, I, Paul even says our faith is futile. We are of all men most to be pitied. We're still in our sins. We're still perishing. We're still on our way to hell. And anybody that would preach Jesus, if he didn't rise from the dead, 
is to be seen as ludicrous and mentally unstable. But he did rise from the dead, and this is what Clark Dinnick writes. Uh, Clark Pinnock, sorry. There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent historical testimonies than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based solely upon irrational bias. Clark Pinnock said... There exists no documents from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent of a historical testimony than that of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity, his death, burial, and resurrection, is just based on an irrational bias. F.F. Bruce wrote, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, so it had, if, if Jesus had never claimed and the disciples never claimed that Jesus rose from the dead and that he, he was um, the son of the living God. If they were a collection of secular writings, the, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. Generally would be regarded as beyond all doubt. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? So I read those three quotes to tell you. There's a lot of opinions about who Jesus is. But his resurrection, which proves that he's the son of God, because Romans 1 says that God declared Jesus to be the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. So I'm taking time to talk about his resurrection. Because we have no son of God unless he raised from the dead. Because all his claims hung on his resurrection from the dead. And the Bible says in Romans 1, God declared Jesus to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the, uh, from the dead. Hebrews 1, listen to this. So there, there can be all kinds of opinions. The fact is, his resurrection can be proven uh, through archaeology. You can go to Jerusalem... Today, they have three tombs that they believe Jesus was laid in. The Catholics believe it's in one place. Protestants believe it's in another place. And then there's some archaeologists that believes it's in another place. You want to know what the common theme or the common denominator between all three tombs is? They're all empty. We can provide an empty tomb. Historians believe Jesus rose from the dead because... The fact of his resurrection, I mean, you read it in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus' resurrection was witnessed by over 500 people. And you all have the doubters say, yeah, but they were all tripping on the same drug. I, I used to do drugs. I've taken hallucinogens back in the day. And I can tell you, everybody that was with me, they didn't see the same thing. They all tripped on different things. For 500 people to take the same drug and all trip and have the same trip, that's a miracle because it's never happened. This group trip, no way. For 500 people to authenticate his resurrection and then become disciples of his afterwards and spread that news could not have happened unless they had seen the real Jesus. It's proven through archaeology, it's proven through history, and then it's proven 
because of through the ages, you have people, men and women, that have been impacted by this great gospel, that their lives were turned around, not by some 10-step program, not by uh, psychology, not by sitting them down and just telling them their actions were wrong and they should change. You can tell people they should change all you want. They ain't going to change. There's only one power that's available to men that still produces change in 2022. And I'm not talking about an outward change that they have to work hard on. I'm talking about the change of the heart, an inward transformation. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says very clearly in Ezekiel 36, he takes out the heart of stone and he puts in us a heart of flesh. That's called the regeneration. Jesus said that you're born again when you believe in the truth. It's a regeneration of the human spirit whereby we receive a new heart with new new desires, new passions. Only the gospel does that. And only Jesus does that. Turn with me to Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And beginning with verse 1. Listen to this. God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom, so spoken to us by who? By his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, have sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is, a, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. So the Bible says God didn't give the angels the same, the same uh, prestige that he gave Jesus. Jesus. Angels are created beings. Jesus is the manifest God. In the manifest God in flesh. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.16, God was made manifest in flesh. That we call the incarnation of Christ. See, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born by, uh, by Mary. He came to the earth. He was incarnate in that he put on flesh. He took on the appearance of man. But his existence precedes his incarnation. The Bible says in John 1, let me read this. John 1 and verse 1. John starts his gospel out by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it doesn't say there was God, and then his Word is just under him. He says, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So before time was, before God created the heavens and the earth, the Word was there. Before there was ever a sun or a universe. The word was there. And all things were made through the word. And without the word, nothing was made that was made. In him, the word was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. Darkness can't comprehend it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word. So he goes on to say what the word was. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him, John the Baptist. And he said, cried out, referring to Jesus, this is he of whom I said, he comes after me, yet he is preferred before me, for he was before me. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He is the pre-existent one. He is the eternal king. The one who dwells in inapproachable light. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who will always be. The one who is to come. Who is Jesus? He is the son of the living God. 1 John chapter 5. And I know I'm driving this point and I'm going to go spend probably a little less time on the others. But this is important. Because your perspective or your opinion about Jesus means, means everything. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He didn't say, uh, you are the Christ and uh, likened unto the angels. He said, you're the son of the living God. Well, Peter knew that if I tied sonship with God to this man that I'm looking at right now, then I'm saying that he's equal with God. We Christians don't believe that Jesus is inferior to God, the father. We believe in a holy trinity. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. These three are one, the Bible says. 1 John 5 says that in the heavens, these three agree as one. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And we just read the Word is Jesus. These three are one. We don't believe in this, this um, separation and hierarchy of heaven that the Father is number one, the Son is number two, and the Holy Spirit, he's weaker than the other two, but he's number three. They're all one. They're one in mind. They're one in purpose. They're one in heart. They're one in agenda. They are one. And 1 John 5 proves this even further. Because this is where a major religion called Islam differs. They can't accept the fact that Jesus was the Son of God made flesh and that he was pinned on a cross. How could... I mean, you have to understand, this is where grace and God's grace is, is appreciated even deeper. Because how could the Son of God, God who dwelt in eternal glory, who had everything, riches, honor, the angels worshiping him, everything at his bestow. He was sitting as King of kings and Lord of lords far before he ever even made us. And yet this God the Bible says, humbles himself. They can't conceive that God should humble himself. They can't conceive that he should lay aside his glory like the Bible says he did. They cannot conceive that the Son of God stooped down to his disciples, took up a cloth and a basin of water, and began to wash man's feet. He got dirty. He took on earth. He took on flesh. He put on man's flesh. He put on Flesh and blood, it doesn't make sense to them. They can't conceive it. Because I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to pre preface, uh, preface all of this by saying, everything I'm saying tonight cannot receive, be received by your carnal mind. It can't be received by your logical uh, processes. It can't be received by your reason, reasoning abilities. You can't accept these things in your mind. It is by faith. And everything works by faith. Everything works by faith. You, God is a faith God. He created you as his children. You are a faith person. You're a faith people. 
Whether you know it or not, your whole life is governed by faith. You're sitting down on a chair right now? I am. I didn't test this chair. When I go into a new auditorium and I sit on a freshly used chair that I never sat on before, I don't test that chair. Very rarely do I ever do that. I mean, I, I don't put my hand on it. Get a cup. Hey, you got some bricks back there you can give me? I need to put them on this chair. See if it can hold me up. Nobody ever does that. You'd look weird. You get on an airplane. Which of you have ever interviewed the pilot? I mean, you got to talk about faith in that respect. You're getting on a massive jet with 200 and 300 other passengers whose life is in the hands of one man, a pilot, who you've not vetted, you've not screened. You don't know if he's suicidal that day. You don't know if he's what he wants to do. You don't know if he just had a divorce and he just wants to crash the, crash the plane. And you know, you don't know those things. And yet none of you dare ask a stewardess saying, can I talk to the pilot and then bring a, a psychologist or a counselor on board and say, can you evaluate this man's psyche? None of you have ever done that. Yet you get on the plane without thinking. That's faith. In the same vein, everything that I'm saying, these seven answers to the question of who is Jesus, these are statements that must be received by faith. And what is faith? Faith is not in seeing with your physical eyes. We walk by faith, Paul said, and not by sight. Jesus turned to Thomas. You know, Thomas had heard about the resurrection of Jesus. They, he wasn't there when Jesus appeared the first time. That shows you something. You should never miss a revival service because you don't know what God will do in that revival service and if you'll miss out in a life-changing breakthrough. But God's grace, Jesus appeared a second time Thomas had heard the entire week, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. He said, unless I put my hand, my finger in the print of his nails, and I put my hand in his side, I will never believe. Jesus appears to him and says, hey, take your hand, Thomas, put it in my hand. Take your, your arm or your hand, put it in my side. And don't be, dis, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas got on his knees and said, I believe, you're the son of the living God. Jesus replied to him and said, Thomas, you believe because you see. It's easy to believe when you see. But blessed are those that believe who, having not seen, yet they still believe. Blessed are those people. So these statements, anything God says in his word has to be accepted by fact. Any claim about Jesus, and I'm going to go through, Jesus is healer, Jesus is deliverer, Jesus is savior, Jesus is provider. I'm going to go through these things. But any of these statements, unless they're received by faith, you'll never see the hand of God work those things out in your life. The Bible says Jesus, the anointed one, came to Nazareth and he could do no mighty works there because they rejected his claim that he was the son of God. They took offense at his claim. They said, this guy's not the son of God. I know his mom. His mom's Mary. His brothers are here with us. Couldn't be God. I grew up with him. We went to grade 6 to 12 together. Matter of fact, he just built me a chair last week. He's a carpenter. He owns a business. No way this guy's God. So I'm get a splinter. If he was God, he would never have had a splinter. They took offense at him. They rejected his claims. And the Bible says Jesus could not do any miracle there because of their unbelief. So as I get into these seven things, you have to, like the Thessalonians, the Bible says they received Paul's claims about Christ, not as the words of men, not as dogmatic statement, but as the words of God, who worketh his power in them that do believe. Number one, he's the son of God. Number two, Oh, I was going to read 1 John 5. Let me read it. 
1 John chapter 5 and verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who believes, who is he that overcomes the world, but he that believes Jesus is the Son of God. There you have it again. For the sake of time, I'll move on to, to two. Number two, Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham and the promised seed that would come through Eve, the Savior of the world. Genesis 3, Adam sins, Eve sins, the human race is tainted at that point with sin, this poison, this venom that got into the human bloodline. And God's immediate pronouncement upon Satan was, on your belly you shall, you shall go. And you'll creep on the earth. He removed his and he removed his, his ability to, to walk. The snake, actually, if you study it, they used this is not me, this is science. You study that snakes actually had arms. Snakes had arms. And now they uh, they, they have a skeletal structure that proves that they had they had um, limbs, they had arms, they had they had legs. That enabled them to walk. But uh, those are gone. Perhaps a direct fulfillment of what God pronounced upon the snake in Eden. But beyond that, what I was getting in is that God said, Unto your belly you shall go. You have bruised man's heel. But one shall come from his seed that will crush your head. Galatians 3 talks about that seed. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed. So remember, it came through Adam and Eve all the way to Abraham. And you can study the genealogy of Christ um, in Matthew chapter 1. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as to many, but as to one and to your seed, who is Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised seed that, um, that God promised in the Garden of Eden and then through Abraham. God promised. Remember when he went to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and God stayed his hand and said, don't, don't touch the lad. And he provided a ram out of the thicket. Well, the ram was just a temporary fix, but it represented the eternal fix that one day God would send his seed, God's seed, the Son of God, to the earth, who would be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. John chapter 4, listen to this. So what does the Bible mean when it says the seed of Abraham? When it refers to the seed, the promised seed of Genesis, it's in reference to the Messiah, the coming one that was prophesied. Remember, I've said this before, all of biblical prophecy, Old Testament, New Testament, but for this case, specifically Old Testament, points to the Messiah, the coming Savior, the coming seed. In John chapter 4, the Bible says that there's a woman at the well that has an encounter with Jesus. She goes into her Samaritan village and starts to brag about this Jesus. He, he told me everything I, I ever did. He's told me all about myself, and I never even met him before. 
And the Bible says the Samaritans came out to see Jesus. And many of the Samaritans then believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them two days. And many more believed now because of his own word. Verse 42. John 4, 42. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said alone. For we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is the promised one. This is the Savior. This is the promised seed of Abraham. This is the promised seed of Genesis. What did he come to save us from? What did that seed come to fulfill? He came to save us from sin. He came to save us from guilt. He came to save us from the wrath of God. He came to save us from shame. He came to save us from our own carnality and flesh. He came to save us from the, the upcoming judgment seat of the great white throne judgment that is documented, that, is to be ha uh, that will happen in Revelation 20, the Bible says, that the books will be open and the dead will stand before this great white throne. Only those that are in Christ who have put their trust in this promised seed, the Savior of the world, will be, will be um, freed from that, that judgment. He's come to save us from sin. 1 John 2, 2. We talk about the Savior of the world. You know, most of, that's the thing, is when people preach a gospel, a lot of times, they, they leave out what people need saving from. We assume everyone was born in church and, 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 and understand the, the, the theology of sin and, and the depravity of man, of man, but it's not the case. Charles Spurgeon used to say, before you can save people, you got to bring them to a point where they understand they're lost. People don't understand that they need saving. They know something's inherently wrong because sin is there. They know, you know, when someone experiences anxiety, they know that's not right. They don't like it. They understand that, but they don't know the root cause of it all. That's why before you can lead people to the Savior of the world, you got to lead them to their own depravity. My pastor says it this way. Before you can make people alive, you got to kill them. You got to show them that's what the law does. The law is a, is a tutor. It shows people that we've fallen short of the glory of God. We're not, we've not achieved God's standard of holiness. The wages of sin is death and all men have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all turned aside. We've together become corrupt. We've done abominable deeds. But the gift of God is, is um, life in Christ Jesus. The Bible says the free gift of God is life eternal by Christ Jesus. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, 2, that if we have sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation, which is a fancy term of saying the, the remover of our sins, and not only of our sins, but the sins of the world. John the Baptist looked at Jesus, and he didn't say, hey, there's a, there's a great prophet. He said, behold the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the entire world. Jesus Christ is, who is Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. Savior from what? Savior from sin, which is the root cause of every other, every other impurity, every other calamity, every other ailment, every other struggle, every other suffering. All of it is rooted in the original sin. Number three, who is Jesus? Jesus is the great provider. He's the great provider. He, he's the El Shaddai of the Old Testament made flesh and dwelling among us. The Bible says in John 6 that they were in the wilderness and they were starving. 
And the disciples came to Jesus and said, send these people away that they can go out and buy bread for themselves. They've been with us for three days. They're starving. What did Jesus do? You're right. Give them some money. No. He took the five breads and the two low, uh, the five breads and the two fish from the lad, the young boy, and he broke it and he multiplied it. He multiplied the little that they had and brought them into a place of abundance. And they all ate and were satisfied. And there were baskets, leftovers of the fragments that remained. Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the great meter of man's needs. And I'm not just talking about financial needs. I'm talking about every need. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. So we're not just talking about financial needs or, or material needs. We're talking about every need. You need hope today? He'll supply that need. You need joy today? He'll supply that need. You need peace today? He'll supply that need. It doesn't matter what the need is. And it certainly does include financial needs too. If you're in need financially today, he's the God that, I mean, he owns all the silver and all the gold. Like I said, there's not the God of the Old Testament and then there's Jesus who's poor and cheap. He's the same God of the Old Testament who said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you. I own the silver. I own the gold. I own the, the, the cattle that are on a thousand hills. David said, I've been young, I'm now old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging for bread. Why? Because he is the great provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. You know, there's a lot of Old Testament compound names of Jehovah. I've done a broadcast on this before, on the compound names of Jehovah, on the names of God. You have Jehovah, the I am, the self-sustaining one. You have Jehovah Tzikednu, the God who is our righteousness. Jehovah Rapha, the God who is our healer. Jehovah Jireh, the God who is our provider. All of those compound names of Jehovah are summarized in the name of Jesus. Because if you study the name of Jesus, it's the all-encompassing names of Jehovah in one. It means deliverer. It, names, it means healer. It means provider. It means, it means peace bringer. It means sufficient one. It means the God who makes whole. The name of Jesus means savior. It means deliverer. It means bondage breaker. It means everything. So we can know if he revealed himself in the Old Testament as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, who said, I will not leave you without, I'll supply all your needs. I will not withhold any good thing for those who walk uprightly, who delights in the prosperity of his servants, who told Abraham, hey, don't worry, I've got your back. And he said, if you'll just walk before me and be blameless, I'll indeed bless you and I'll cause you to be a great blessing. So that shows you if you'll... If you'll follow me, God told Abraham, you're not going to be the one panhandling everywhere you go with the beggar's face, asking everybody for whatever needs you have. The Bible says quite the opposite. You'll be the one supplying. You'll be the one meeting the needs. You'll be the one because of the overflow. I'm going to bring you bringing, bringing the solution to other people's needs. He's the great provider. He didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What he did for Abraham, where he brought him out of an idol's home, out of his father's house, 
out of, he detached from his old nature and his old identity of being uh, his father's son, struggling all his life. You know, Abraham wasn't rich before he met God. Abraham wasn't walking in, 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 in divine wealth before he met God. All of a sudden, in one chapter, Genesis 12 to 13, now Abraham's very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. Well, that same God that did that for Abraham is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and he'll do it for you. He'll help you today. It doesn't matter what your need is. If it's, if it's the rent for the end of the month. You know, I, do, I give a lot of testimonies. I have a testimony where the Lord supplied 30 grand in the span of like three months to pay my Bible college bill, to pay my debt. And, and that always, you know, has a great response when I preach it. But when I give small little testimonies, like one time I had sown a seed, we were, we were running out of money, my wife and I. We were running out of money. We were in my, my parents' basement and we had no money to just like help ourselves, just live, you know, if we wanted to go and buy food, you know, something little like that. And uh, I remember we sowed a seed and it was like a week later, a man that I hadn't even seen in, in who knows how long. He said, hey, brother, can you come over? I have something to give you. So I, I, we went over, and he wrote up a $5,000 check. And our account balance went from like, I don't know how much money we had, like a couple of hundred bucks, 200 bucks. Our account balance went from that to 5200 bucks in one day after we sowed a seed, believing and fully trusting that the Lord will do like he did with the, the five loaves and two fish. You, you know, it, it wasn't just Jesus snapping his fingers and bread came out of nowhere. That little boy had to offer up what he could before Jesus could multiply. I'm not a mathematician, but zero times zero is a mathematical impossibility. You try and put it in your calculator, your calculator is going to go all funny. It doesn't even, it's not even zero. There is no zero times zero. God can't multiply zero. God could only multiply what you put in his hands. And when you do it, the Bible says, give and you shall give and it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, falling over into your lap. Luke 22, the Bible says when he sent his disciples out, he sent them without, remember he said, don't take money, don't take anything with you. I'm gonna show you how great I'm gonna provide for you. Luke 22, they returned. The Bible says, when I sent you out without money, without gold, without uh, purse or without any silver? Did you lack anything? And they all together said, we didn't lack anything. We lack nothing. And Thomas was there, doubting Thomas. So if they did lack something, he would have spoke up and said, oh, actually, you know what? We did lack something. It was terrible. It was horrendous. Couldn't pay for anything. Had to steal to get, to get through. Even Thomas said, we lack nothing. Well, God, who was so good to make it so that they lack nothing, is the same God of Psalm 23 today, who said, if you'll Follow me as your shepherd, which remember, Jesus is the great shepherd of our souls. And he said, if the Lord is your shepherd, you will not lack anything. I tell you in the name of Jesus, as you've been faithful to sow into the gospel, as you've been faithful to give your best, not a Cain offering, an Abel offering, I'm talking to you. You who have given over and above, you're not just a tither, you sacrificially give. I tell you, as you live holy and you live uh, with, with, with God's kingdom in mind. You've sought first the kingdom of God in all his righteousness. 
I tell you in the name of Jesus, your hands will never run dry. You will never live from a place of scarcity and need. You will live in a place of abundance. You'll live from the overflow. You'll not be scraping the barrel of the bottom of the barrel. You'll be eating from the cream of the crop. You'll be the head always and never beneath. You'll have more than enough, not just enough. You'll always live from a place of more than enough in Jesus' name. Number three, he's a great provider. Number four, Jesus is the bondage breaker. Now now it's about to get interesting. There's gonna be people set free as I speak right now. I believe that. So if you haven't shared the broadcast, please do so. Luke chapter four and verse 18. He's the bondage breaker. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he said, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable or acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. If you study what... what, what he was quoting right there, is to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Well, what was the year of Jubilee? Every seven years, if a man had debt in Israel or he had, you know, offered up his land to somebody else to make a payment, for those six years, that man had full control over that land. But on the seventh year, it was the year of Jubilee. All the land that they had lost for payments or whatever deals they had done, done, it goes back into their possession. They are freed from, if they had any debt that they owed, if they had any, any uh, type of outstanding balance, all of it was cleared on the year of Jubilee, the year of favor of God, the Bible says. Well, Jesus said, I've come to release the captives, to proclaim liberty to those that are oppressed, and to tell you it is the day, it's the year of Jubilee, that every debt that we owed, you know, when you sinned, we owed a debt to God, And that debt, we sold ourselves out to the kingdom of darkness. The Bible says we were under the dominion and the power of Satan himself. We were under the control of the the spirit of disobedience, the Bible says. We're under the power of the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said it this way. The prince of this world comes and he has nothing in me. Satan is the prince of this world. When we were in sin... We were under his rule and reign of terror. Jesus said, I've come to break you out. I've come to break every bondage associated with his reign of terror. Every chain that the devil's forged in hell to keep you down. Every rope of sin that that has kept you back and has hindered your progress. That delays and, and hinders you. Jesus said, I've come to break you free from that. He came, here's a modern day example of what I'm talking about. He came to declare and proclaim the emancipation proclamation from slavery to the kingdom of darkness. I always give this example. When the emancipation proclamation was signed uh, in the north, it took two full years for the, for the uh, African American people in Texas to hear of it. They continued as slaves for two full years. Not because legally they had to continue as slaves. Legally, they were free. That thing was signed. It was United States law now. Slavery was illegal. But because they hadn't heard 
that they were free. And it took two full years, because remember, there wasn't Twitter where you can tweet, emancipation, breaking news, emancipation proclamation signed, we're all free. They couldn't do that. Took two years for the news to reach Texas. Because it took that long, there were many people that stayed on and slaves for those two years. But in, when, when word hit their ears, they were set free that moment. It's exactly what Jesus was announcing here. Many of you have been, not many of you, you're, Jesus said you're all sons of the devil and slaves of sin. But I've come to proclaim the emancipation proclamation from the kingdom of heaven. That your day of being in prison cells, bound by devils, bound by the kingdom of hell, bound by Satan's regime, bound by his tyrannical law, Behind the bars of hell, in the city center of hell itself, well guarded by every one of the devil, devil's minions and his demons. Jesus made a public show of the devil. He triumphed over the devil, the Bible says, and he disarmed his demons. He disarmed, disarmed his power, disarmed all principalities. He made a public humiliation of hell openly. And then he went to your prison cell and the key of the kingdom, he opened up your cell. And he said, you're free to go. The problem is, is there's too many Christians that hear a message like that. And they say, oh, one day I'm going to be free. When heaven, you don't have to be free in heaven. You can be free now. Whom the Son sets free will be free and free indeed. And Jesus said, how you're free? He said, those who hear these words of mine and know the truth. So not just hear the truth. They know and understand and believe in the truth. The truth will set them free. Jesus is the bondage breaker. You look at it in Mark 5. He went and there's a man at the Gadarene area, the Gadarene region that's bound by over 2,000 demons. Couldn't be bound and tamed by shackles and chains. They couldn't hold him down. He broke apart the shackles. He broke free from the chains. He went into the, the mountains and he'd cut himself with stones. He was diabolically possessed, held in bondage by satanic spirits that came to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, hey, Come out, you unclean spirits. And in one moment, the man's bondages were broken off and he was free. Jesus set people free everywhere he went. Set people free of demons. Set people free of depression. Every time Jesus saw someone weeping, what was his first word to them? Hey, weep not. Stop crying. He set people free from depression. The Bible says in Isaiah 61, which is what Luke 4 is quoting, an Old Testament passage. So Jesus was reading from Isaiah. But if you read on and continue on, he stopped after, you know, verse 3. But read Isaiah 61. Let me read it for you. To proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to console those who mourn in Zion. One of the greatest bondages of our generation is depression. People are bound by depression. A spirit of heaviness, the Bible calls it. Well, this is what God said. That same anointing that yet set you free from sin, that same anointing that set you free from demons, that same spirit that regenerated you and brought you into salvation is the same spirit that's going to do this, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. There is a real spirit of depression. Sure, you can explain it away, uh, naturally, lack of chemicals in the brain or whatever, but and even some people who go through terrible times, they have a depression. 
They go through a depression or whatnot, and they can just point at it. Well, no wonder they're depressed. Has nothing to do with demons. Has everything to do with what happened to them. Yes, but the spirit of heaviness will gravitate towards a man or a woman that is depressed and make it worse and make it intolerable and weigh in on them. And the thing that even preachers in my generation have pitched and preached to people is that we have to tolerate our depression. That it's actually a sign of piety. They actually use Jesus being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. They say of Jesus, he was depressed. My friend, Jesus was not depressed. He was the embodiment of joy. And the good news is, is because, because uh, he came to destroy the work of the devil and depression being part of the work of the devil, that there's freedom available for you today. He can break the bondage of depression off your life right now. God didn't give us a spirit of fear or heaviness or bondage. He gave us a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Being suicidal is not soundness of mind. Jesus came to set you free from that. Number five, he's the prince of peace, which ties into what I just said. John 14, 27, Jesus said, My peace I give unto thee, not as the world gives, and the world can't take it from you because the world didn't give it to you. John 14, 1 says, Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. For in my Father's house are many mansions. He said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't have your heart tempest-tossed. It's not normal to live anxious about everything. Jesus actually said, Don't worry about your life about what you'll eat, nor about your body as to what you'll put on. These things dominate the minds of those that are unbelievers. He said, be anxious for nothing. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come unto me all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'm going to show you how hard life can actually get. You come to me all that are weary and heavy laden, complaining about your situation. I'm going to add more burden. Some people think God is Pharaoh of the Old Testament. The Bible says Pharaoh heard the groanings of the people of Israel and he said, you know what? He set taskmasters over them and he increased their daily tasks and he, he actually said, no longer are you going to take our resources. You're going to have to go and fend for yourselves. He made things harder. Some people think that's how God is. That when God hears your cry and your desperate cry and plea for breakthrough and deliverance, that he's going to say, oh yeah? Let me add, you think life's hard? Do you, have any, do, you have any, do you have any idea how many people are struggling with worse, worse things than you and you have the gall to ask me to be relieved from that anxiety today? Oh, some people have that, that image of God. That he's some taskmaster. That he's some brutal, vile, sadistic God. When in reality, he said, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden and I'm gonna give you peace. I'm gonna give you rest. He said, Come and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Take my yoke upon you, because it's easy. Take my burden, because it's light. He didn't say take my yoke. It's going to crack your neck. And good. The more it cracks, the more you're Christly, Christ-like. No, he said take my yoke, it's easy. And take my burden, it's light. It's light. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand is pleasures forevermore not pressures he's called the prince of peace for goodness sakes jesus looked to the raging seas which could rep represent the storm you're experiencing right now which is causing unprecedented anxiety and distress and sighing and crying in your heart 
He looked at the storm and he didn't say, disciples, how many of you know? This is what life brings us sometimes. But it's in the storms that God refines us the most. What? He said, peace, be still. And the storms were stilled. And Peter, who was a trained fisherman, stood up and he said, hey, I've been on the seas my entire life. I've never seen it calm like today. I prophesy in the name of Jesus, no matter how tempest-tossed your life may be right now, it doesn't matter how stormy it is, it doesn't matter what the devil's thrown at you, if all hell has raised loose against you, it doesn't matter what's happened around you, God, by his spirit, is about to still that storm now, in Jesus' name. All the anxiety, all the pressure, all the worry, in the name of Jesus Christ, like a wind that blows the chaff away. The wind of heaven is blowing away all your worry and anxiety in Jesus' name. Peace be still. Number six, Jesus is healer. He's the healer. And this is my, one of my favorite ones. And actually, I heard the Lord speak to me yesterday while I, was, while I was in bed. Next week, we're having divine healing week. Next week, we're having divine healing week. Tuesday and Thursday's broadcast, and I'm going to upload other videos in between. All of it is going to be centered around the subject of divine healing, and we're going, to, we're going to see people get healed. I don't preach healing to explain away why people don't get healed. I preach healing from the Word of God, which the Word of God never gives excuses. Notice how there's nothing in the Bible that says if people don't get healed, this is why. This is why. It's because God has you know other plans for them. Anytime it says, uh, anytime it talks about healing, it's a definitive statement that God is making. Are any of you sick? Call for the elders of the church. Anoint them with oil. Pray the prayer of sick, uh, the prayer of faith, and the Lord will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. Doesn't say, are any of you sick? I want you guys just to lift your hand and say, God, give me strength to endure this struggle. It doesn't say that. It says, call the elders of the church, anoint them with oil, pray the prayer of faith, and the Lord will save the sick. And not... And the Lord will see it if it's fitting for that person at that time to receive healing. He'll, he'll, he'll give healing. we got to leave it in his hands. It's, it's a definitive statement. He'll heal the sick. So next week, we're doing Divine Healing Week. So mark that in your calendars and be present. If you're sick, you know someone who's sick, let them know. It's going to be powerful. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is healer. Actually, let's do Matthew chapter 4. One of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. Verse 23, Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and telling all the sick people that one day, one day, it doesn't matter how sick they are now, one day they'll have a glorified body. No. And he went about healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And so when other people heard about him, they brought to him all that were sick, who were afflicted with various diseases, didn't matter what it was, stage one, stage four, type one, type two, didn't matter if it was high blood pressure or low blood pressure, didn't matter if it was a, 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 a genetical problem or if it was something that just first popped up in them, it didn't matter if it was something major or minor, it didn't matter if it was sniffles or, or if it was death itself that was facing them. All sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed them. The Bible says they brought to him all that were sick, 
and lame and maimed and, and, and uh, paralyzed and crippled. And the multitudes marveled when they saw the sick healed, the blind seen, the maimed made whole, the deaf hearing, and the lame walking. And they glorified the God of Israel and said, we've seen strange things today. Jesus Christ, who we read in, Ephesians, uh, in Hebrews 1, is the exact representation of the nature of God. So everything Jesus did was a reflection of who God is and was a reflection of God's nature, God the Father, because I and my Father are one. Everything Jesus did was in unison with the Father's will, plans, and desires. And he wasn't going around making people sick. He was finding the sick and making them well. How many of you know sometimes we don't know why we're sick and God has, he works in mysterious ways and you know sometimes it's that sickness that's going to bring you closer to God. Maybe it will. But it doesn't mean God originated the sickness. I'm not saying that my, when I had OCD and God healed me, it definitely opened my eyes up to something that I'd never seen before. Jesus Christ is healer. But God didn't give me OCD to bring that. I could have easily have learned that Jesus he was healer by simply reading the Gospels. But I didn't know that because I hadn't read the Gospels. Could have learned. God doesn't need the devil's help to teach you a lesson or to reveal himself to you. He has the Holy Spirit and he has his word. His word is sufficient for us. And this word of, the word of God, specifically the Gospels. You see, I don't want to know the Jesus of modern times that preaches coping mechanisms, tells people that, you know, there's a reason for everything. All that mumbo jumbo that means squat. I want to study the Jesus of the Bible. I want to see Jesus and experience Jesus exactly as who he was and is to this day. And if that means rejecting the modern strain of preaching, which a lot of it has to be rejected because it's, it's literally just, you know, there's a lot of sick people in our church. Let's just try and make sense of it all. We're not called to make sense of it all. You're called to preach. What does the Bible say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't try and make sense of it all. Just preach the gospel. But what if people don't get healed when I preach Jesus is healer? What if people do get healed? The books I have behind me, Reinhard Bonnke, Teal Osborne, R.W. Schambach, all these guys, they're not people who, who, who talk about Jesus the healer the way some, some preachers do these days. They're not talking about, you know, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says maybe we got to just trust his process, amen. That's not how they got the healings. Teal Osborne and Daisy Osborne, his wife, out of ever, any people in history have seen more healings in their ministry than any other couple or any other ministry in the history of the world. Seen millions impacted by the healing power of God. How did they preach healing? They didn't preach it the way modern strain of preaching preaches it. They talk about healing just being like a side issue, you know. Jesus didn't come to heal us of our sicknesses. He came to heal us of our spiritual sickness. First of all, you didn't have spiritual sickness. You were dead in sin. You needed to be resurrected. Because that's what they use. By his stripes we're healed. Amen. It's spiritual sickness he's talking about. No, you, he was, he, he, we, didn't need, we didn't need spiritual healing. We needed spiritual resurrection. Bible says he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. But there's people, and that's why it gets me angry when preachers talk down about healing, that it's nonchalantly some 
side issue or some non-essential part of the Bible because there's people that are struggling with perpetual sicknesses, chronic sicknesses, and are feeding off the pharmaceutical industry of this world. And you know, there's preachers that are more keen in recommending a doctor or a pill and are happy to do it than recommending the great physician of the Bible who's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. What he did then. Well, that, Jesus healed people in those days because he wanted to prove his, his messianic ministry and his deity. He doesn't do that anymore because we have the word of God. Really? Well, then... Jesus doesn't forgive sins anymore. He forgave sins in Mark 2, but he doesn't forgive sins anymore because we have the word of God. Well, Jesus doesn't, uh, Jesus doesn't bring joy or peace to anybody anymore because we have the word of God. He brought peace to people in those days because he was trying to prove his messianic ministry. He did all everything he did in those days. He did it just to prove his messianic ministry. He certainly didn't do it because he loved people. <laughs> Go far be it from us that we should believe in a Jesus that actually healed the sick because he felt compassion for them because that's exactly what the word of God says his motivation was because the Bible says he saw the multitudes, saw them as sheep without shepherd. He was moved with compassion and he called his disciples to himself and he said, I'm giving you power and authority to cast out unclean spirits, and to heal every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. We just read in Matthew 4.23, right? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel in the kingdom of the kingdom, healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. Well, there he repeats it again. But when he saw the multitudes, remember, Jesus was one person when he was on the earth. And he was, he was confined to a physical body. So he could only do a couple of things every day. He couldn't do everything. He wasn't omnipresent when he, was, he had lowered himself to take on the form of a man. He forfeited that omnipresence for a short season. So when he saw the multitudes and saw he was, he was cut out for work, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered, having like sheep with have no, having no shepherd. And he said, the harvest truly is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So what was the labor he wanted to give, commission them to do? Chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave him power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. So it shows you, Jesus was very, healing was serious business to Jesus Christ and it's still serious business for him today. God laid all of our sicknesses on Jesus so that now the Satan would have no ability legally to lay sickness on you or your family. He's still a healer. He's still the great physician. He's still the God who opens up blind eyes who unstops deaf ears. I've seen it. Can tell you testimony after testimony of people. I had someone just right into the ministry a couple of weeks ago. COVID. Dying. Can you pray? We agreed in prayer. The next day, they took him off the ventilator. He's alive. He's living. Thank you for praying. Well, I didn't do anything. I just asked the Lord. He, I just put in the request. The Lord did it all. Because we, we prayed the prayer of faith. What's the prayer of faith? Lord, if it be thy will, we just pray that you would guide the hand of the surgeon today. You can't have a, a faith, a more faithless prayer than that. 
And that's how they say, in thy name we pray, amen. That's not a, the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is, Father, thank you for giving us authority as servants of Christ to heal the sick, to proclaim your name over any sickness and disease, and that thing has to bow out of people's lives. Thank you for the authority to heal every manner of sickness and every man of disease. We take authority over this thing now, and in Jesus' name, I loose the healing power of God into their body. We call it done now by faith. Amen. Thank you for it, God. That's the prayer of faith. When's the last time you heard a prayer like that? Instead, can everyone just stretch forth your hand to this Sister Lucy in the front? We're just going to pray. Father, we know that sometimes we don't understand why things happen. But we do know that all things are in your plan. And if you see it fit to take her now, we pray, give her struggling widower strength to get through the times. And if you see it fit to heal her, we pray that you'd guide the surgeons. Like, <laughs> how, how skilled are you at stripping the anointing out of prayer? To pray a prayer like that makes no sense to me. If that's the church you attend, run. Run. He's healer. Jesus Christ, who is he? He's the healer of our bodies, physical bodies. Bible says we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And no man hates his own body, but he nourishes it, even as Christ does the church. You think the Lord wants to see you popping pills every day just to get through the pain? Do you think the Lord wants to see you having to go to those treatments three times a week, dialysis and all that? Do you think that pleases the Lord? The Bible says no man hates his own body. You think you have a love for your body more than the Lord has a love for your body? And you are his body, member of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. And he says no man hates his body, but every man nourishes his body. God is going to nourish you right now from the top of your, oh, I feel it right now. In the name of Jesus, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. The healing power of God is going to nourish and strengthen and quicken every organ of your body. Every sickness is leaving your system now by divine decree. And we call it done in Jesus' name. And number seven, and I finish with this. Who is Jesus? He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians 2 says, because of his death and resurrection, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. That at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, of things on the earth, and of things on the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. There's a lot of politicians and a lot of governors and a lot of, of, of um, authorities on the earth today that are mouthing off against Jesus. And they, they make decrees and they make laws and regulations and they implement demonic structures in society thinking that they'll never have to give an account to Christ. But let me tell you, there's going to be a day doesn't matter what earthly king and what power that earthly king has and what authority that earthly king has. Jesus Christ is king of all kings. And he proved it with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar mouthed off against God, thought he can get away, from, away with it. But the Bible says there was a writing on the wall and he was humiliated. He was killed that very night. Seven years, Another king, it was seven years of, of lunacy he experienced. He was eating grass like a cow because he thought he can exalt himself above God. There's a lot of politicians that are trying to exalt themselves above, above God, above God's authority. 
trying to bring restrictions on man's freedom. They're going to find out real soon. Listen to this, Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. Why does he have many crowns? Because he's not just a king. He's not king of the Jews alone. He's king of kings. And he's Lord of lords. Why do you think when the inscription was laid above the cross, above his head on the cross, it, it said, here lies Jesus, king of the Jews, in every single language, in Latin, in Greek, and in, uh, in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew. Because Jesus wasn't just king of the Jews for the Hebrews. He's the king of kings for every nation, every tribe, every language, every people group. Even the tribal places in the Amazonian regions and in Papua New Guinea who may have never even heard of him. He rules by his power over them. And the Bible says he has many crowns. Many crowns. And he had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and I following behind him. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And he strikes the nations with it. And he himself will rule with a rod of iron. And he himself will tread upon the, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has a robe on his thigh. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, God raised Christ from the dead and he placed him at his right hand of authority far above principalities far above dominions, far above powers, and far above every ruling authority in this age and in the age to come. He's the monarch of the universe. He's the king of kings who was not elected, neither was he appointed. He can't be voted out because he was never voted in. He can't be impeached. He is the, 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 divinely, the divine ruling one. Bible says he's the Lion of Judah who rules by his power forever. The everlasting God of his kingdom and of his power, there will be no end. He rules by his power forever. I want to play a video right now that I really love listening to and it's going to bless you. So stay tuned. Listen to this by S.M. Lockridge. There's not much type of preaching like this anymore, but listen to this. It's going to bless you. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unparalleled. 
unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him for you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Hallelujah. It's a powerful video, and it's absolutely true. He's, he's everything. He's not just, you know, Paul didn't say Christ is part of my life. He said he is my life. He's the prince of peace. He is my peace. He is my joy. He is my king. He is the, the ancient of days, the rock of ages, the ever-living God, the incorruptible seed of the living God. He is our redeemer. He's our savior. He's the baptizer in the Holy Ghost and fire. He's the soon and coming king. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's El Shaddai. He's the all-sufficient God, the one of more than enough. That's our king. That's our king. Do you know him? If you don't know him, today's the day. I want you to pray this prayer with me. If you've never given your life to Jesus, or you have, but you've fallen astray, and you want to come back on the highway of holiness today, the pathway of peace, you want to come back to Christ because you're weary, you're heavy laden. Life's not been enjoyable for you. And you want to have his yoke come on you, which is easy, his burden, which is light. Don't push this opportunity off. Give your life to Jesus right now. Pray this with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I turn to you. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me by your blood. I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess 
Jesus is my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Where I was weak, make me strong. I will live for you. And I will endure to the end. Not by might, not by strength, but by your spirit. All things are passed away. From today, everything becomes new. In Jesus' name, my sins are forgiven. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and I'll never be the same. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to go to salvationnow.ca. The link that pops up first is I just got saved. Click it. Fill it out. Get that information to me. There's a video at the bottom of the page that's four things I would tell every Christian or four basic things every Christian must know. And it's four things I would tell you. If we had 30 minutes right now, right after you prayed this prayer, if we had 40 minutes in a cafe somewhere, these are the four things I'd tell you that you need to do if you're going to ensure success in this Christian walk. God bless you. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.